Welcome to the Stoic Handbook Podcast. This is John Brooks speaking. First of all, I just want to say thank you so much for being a member of the Stoic Handbook community and taking the time out of your day to listen to my podcast, read my newsletter, and put the ideas to practice to level up your practical wisdom. If you're a fan of my work and you want to support the show, you can sign up to the premium version of the Stoic Handbook Podcast. You can either do this directly from within Apple Podcasts or you can go on stoichandbook.supercast.com. When you sign up to Stoic Handbook Premium, you'll get access to my existing library of Stoic meditation and contemplation courses. I make each course about a specific emotional topic like negative thinking or anxiety, relationships, anger, etc., as well as workshops, exclusive Ask Me Anything sessions, and ad-free standard episodes. There's a seven-day free trial, so you can check it out, see if it's good for you. I'm always adding new content and I take a lot of time to craft my courses to make them as high quality as can be. One of the listeners of the Stoic Handbook Premium told me that they listened to my anxiety course over 50 times. People often like to go through them over and over again. So like I said, you can check it out, see if it's a good fit for you. It's this podcast plus a bunch of premium episodes, meditations, talks, workshops, etc. And I also open up the space for questions as well. If you want to talk to me and get me to record a podcast episode on a specific topic for you, that's what Stoic Handbook Premium is there for. Now let's go into today's episode. Donald wrote a book called How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. And this episode, we go into that book and figure out really how we can be a bit more like Marcus Aurelius in our own lives. We discuss things such as the stoic training of Marcus Aurelius, the role of compassion in his life, the battle between stoicism and Sophism, the biggest influences on Marcus's stoic development, how Marcus journaled and reflected on his day and how we can emulate him, the biggest mistakes and misconceptions we all make when practicing stoicism. We look at the stoic view of pornography and other modern vices. Donald answers if stoics ever see themselves as victims of bad situations. We look at the incredible emphasis and techniques Marcus used to manage his anger. We look at the hardships that beset his life, the level of plagiarism found in Stoic texts, the interplay of Western philosophy and psychedelics, mysticism in Stoicism, and just tons more. If you've ever read Meditations, you like Stoicism, you like philosophy, this is really a packed interview and I recommend keeping a notebook handy. I'd like to present to you Donald Robertson. So for this podcast, I, I really want to talk to you specifically about the book and Marcus Aurelius, um, rather than like an overall stoic episode, which we kind of did on our first, our first conversation. Yeah. So I want to just start like by making Marcus Aurelius kind of like a real person for people, because I think you did such a good job of this in your book where he felt like a like a living person instead of just a statue that that's how i kind of yeah. thought of him before like a statue um but he also was he kept his his impressiveness as well as i read your book so uh, maybe you could just describe what the average day might have looked like for marcus aurelius during the time that he wrote his book meditations 
Well, during the time that he was writing the meditations, I mean, it's interesting. We don't know 100% for certain exactly when he wrote it, but we've got some clues. So without kind of boring you with the reconstruction of that, he probably wrote it, I think, between somewhere between 170 and 175 AD, when he would have been uh, at various legionary fortresses along the, the northern frontier of the Roman Empire during the First Marcomannic War. So he was commanding the troops at, at that time, we believe. And he, he seems to say that at various points in the book. He mentions at one point that he's writing it at Carnuntum, um, which is actually the place in Austria I visited recently. There's a huge archaeological park there, at the ruins of what was once a, a major Roman legionary fortress where Marcus stationed himself for some of the war, perhaps for, for much of the First Marcomannic War. So he would have been in his role as emperor and also as commander-in-chief, as a general overseeing uh, mainly these, these military camps where the legions were based. Mm. And he would have been involved with the military and he would have been overseeing the overall strategy of the war. But um, I think when we talk about that, we kind of imagine a lot of battles taking place, which is what happened. But I think Marcus would have also been involved a lot of the time in diplomacy. And so he would have been writing a lot of letters and speeches he would have been involved in a lot of complex negotiations with the many different tribes that the Romans were fighting along the Danube. And, and really, there was a, Marcus was something of a workaholic and very much involved in the administration of the Roman Empire. So as well as kind of the battles, there was a lot of administrative stuff, a lot of legal stuff, um, a lot of diplomatic stuff that he would be engaged in. Right, okay. Uh, how accurate is, you, you know the film Gladiator, how accurate is that depiction of Marcus Aurelius? Oh, not very accurate. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, you know, we all love it, right? Who doesn't like Gladiator? But, yeah. um, and, you know, in what sense, you know, maybe it gives a, maybe it gives a kind of glimpse of, of what his character might have been like. Um, and there's, there's kind of allusions to the truth. Um, but I mean, the main thing is that, that Commodus in the movie is his successor, and murders Marcus Aurelius in order to to take power. Um, because in the movie, Richard Harris, Marcus Aurelius says, I think that he's going to appoint Maximus Russell Crowe instead as an interim ruler to return to a republic, and that's mm. largely fictional. Though there's kind of even in that like a little glimmer of truth. Maximus's character is a little bit like. Um, Marcus Aurelius's uh, son-in-law, Pompeianus, one of his senior generals, and he was appointed to kind of uh, be a mentor, a supervisor to Commodus. Um, but Commodus was already emperor when Marcus Aurelius died. In fact, he'd been emperor for about three years. Um, and so Marcus instigated at the beginning of his reign this thing where he ruled jointly. For the first time in the history of the Roman Empire, they had co-emperors, and he ruled alongside his adoptive brother, Lucius Verus, at first, and Lucius Verus would have therefore been seen as Marcus's likely successor in a sense, um, because he was about nine years younger than him, so he was expected to outlive him. He was a lot healthier, but he died prematurely, perhaps from the plague. And so later Marcus then appointed Commodus as co-emperor, and so they were already ruling together for several years um, before Marcus died. And, and Marcus... Um, is unlikely to have been murdered. He's much more likely to have died from the, the various ailments that he, he suffered from or from the plague. So was Commodus uh, Marcus's only son? 
No, he had actually 13 children altogether. Um, if I remember rightly, he had about four or five sons. And we don't, we're not 100% sure exactly how many children he had, actually. Some of them mm. probably died very young, but it was believed he had about 13. And Commodus was his only surviving son, though. Uh, okay. And Commodus actually was appointed when he was very young. I think Commodus was about four or five when he was appointed Caesar, so the official successor. Um, and that's that's surprising. Um, and it's probably because it was during the Marcomannic War, and it seems likely that the Senate wanted Marcus to appoint a successor early on to try and stabilise the empire and, and reduce the, the risk of civil wars and arguments over the succession and stuff. Um, but Marcus also appointed his other one of his other sons, Marcus Annius Verus, um, who was a bit younger than Commodus. I think he was a year younger than Commodus, as, as Caesar. So there were two boys who were officially designated as his successor. Um, but the younger one also died prematurely, leaving Commodus as the only successor. And so actually Marcus seems to have made various shifting arrangements throughout his reign to, to deal with his succession. Um, and you know, often he was thwarted by circumstances in his plans. One might imagine that being the son of Marcus Aurelius, that he would have passed on his wisdom uh, but you, you write in your book that Commodus's character was a little bit questionable. Um, yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, as far as we know, Commodus was a bad ruler. And the thing we have to be a little bit wary of is the Roman histories tend to not be even-handed. Um, they usually kind of go to one extreme or the other. So if they like you, they really like you. If they don't like you, they'll really kind of ridicule you. So Marcus Aurelius maybe is a bit idealized. Commodus maybe seems like he's being a little bit demonized because they, you know, like they decided that they, they didn't like him as a ruler. So they really pour scorn on him. But it seems that he, he was a problematic ruler. He wasn't like Marcus Aurelius. He, he was probably expected to live up to that example, and he didn't. He seems to have overturned some of the policies that his father uh, had in place. He abandoned the, the northern frontier, for example, and bribed the enemy tribes. So he went for a quick-fix solution, whereas Marcus was more interested in the long-term peace and securing that through careful negotiation. Um and Commodus went back to Rome to live really um, to secure your status as the emperor. I believe you kind of need the support of the Senate or of the military or of the populace at Rome. And, and Commodus seems like he blew the support that he had from the military by abandoning the, the northern campaign. And I think he painted himself in a corner where he then really had to become popular with the people of Rome and the way to do that is by throwing lots of parties basically you know throwing money at public celebrations and stuff and, and the emperor then becomes a bit like a celebrity and I think Marcus would have been hor like horrified by that you know that that's kind of the opposite you know completely flies in the face of the the values of stoicism it's all about kind of surface and appearance rather than actually being a, a good ruler and one thing we're told, I think it's Herodian that says this, maybe I feel like Cassius Dio perhaps and um, says something similar, that uh, we sometimes think of Commodus like in Gladiator, he seems like quite a vile, kind of corrupt figure. He's played by Joaquin Phoenix and uh, he, he plays him as quite a sinister character. But actually the histories say that he, it was more like he was a bit naive and gullible and he was easily swayed by various courtiers that were around him, kind of trying to manipulate him and stuff. 
So he's right. portrayed more as a kind of gullible figure who's gradually corrupted over time. Okay. Well, what was Marcus Aurelius like as a as a child, as a teenager? Did he go through any kind of major transformation uh, into the person that we now think of him as? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that comes out of the the histories. So we have various references to Marcus. You know, one of the reasons I chose to write about him is we know more about him than any other Stoic because he was um, like very powerful and very famous. So we have histories by Herodian, Cassius Dio, and the Historia Augusta, and then we've got other various bits and pieces that tell us about him. But also the Meditations, although in some ways doesn't say a lot of specific stuff about his life, although it's, in a sense, a per- quite a personal uh, series of reflections, the first book of the Meditations, the first chapter, is all about his uh, family members and teachers and so that gives us a lot of interesting details about his relationships and in particular his childhood and adolescence so we can read and it, it, what it says in there actually is quite consistent with what's said in the histories about his childhood and education so we can kind of paint this picture of a guy and it looks like he is being implied that he went through certain transformations and so he came from a very privileged background but there seems to have been a bit of a clash between his family and the the life at court, particularly under Hadrian. So the Emperor Hadrian was kind of Marcus's, well, he became Marcus's adoptive grandfather. And it it was really Hadrian that decided that Marcus was going to become emperor one day. However, he had to appoint an interim uh, emperor to succeed him because Marcus was only a young boy when Hadrian died. And so Antoninus Pius succeeded Hadrian and he was became Marcus's adoptive father because Marcus's real father died when he was very young we believe he died when he was about three or four years old and so he was brought up by his father and um, his uh, his mother his paternal grandfather um, and then subsequently by uh, Antoninus uh, who went on to become the emperor after Hadrian and so Marcus's life changed a lot right he, he started off uh, is this boy who had lost his father, being brought up by um, a very wealthy uh, Roman matriarch. Um, his his mother owned a, a brick and tile factory outside Rome, came from a, a very wealthy and powerful family. And his grandfather was a very accomplished Roman statesman and a friend of Hadrian. So a powerful family. But they had very old-fashioned Roman values. Um, and so they valued simplicity and plain speaking. They had values particularly his mother, that seemed to have been pretty consistent with the values of Stoicism. And his mother was an educated woman, and it, it's implied by Marcus that she was friends with a guy called Junius Rusticus, who went on to become Marcus's main Stoic teacher. So we could speculate it may be that it was partly Marcus's mother who pointed him in the direction of Stoicism. It seems like she may have known some Stoics, and perhaps it was partly her idea that these men would go on to become her son's mentors and teachers. And she certainly is described as having similar values to the the Stoics, although not necessarily a student of philosophy herself. And then Marcus was kind of brought into the court of Hadrian, and Hadrian was a much more pretentious and fickle character. Um, He was uh, kind of more in line with the culture of the second sophistic um, the you know the the guys the intellectuals that Hadrian was interested in were were more kind of showy. They gave elaborate speeches and stuff like that. It was more about appearances, mm-hmm. and, and this didn't really sit comfortably with Marcus. 
So Marcus had to be ed- educated in rhetoric um, by men who were essentially uh, Roman uh, era Stoics, uh, Herodes Atticus and uh, Marcus Cornelius Fronto, who were the two leading Greek and Latin rhetoricians of his day, um, two of the leading teachers in, in, the, in the known world. And so they educated Marcus uh, in the sophisticated use of language um, and Greek and Roman culture. Um, and he, there was a contest. There always has been a contest, all the way back to Socrates, between uh, sophists or rhetoricians and philosophers. So the sophists place much more value on the appearance of sophistication and culture, on persuasion, on impressing crowds and literally winning as much applause as possible, kind of being a celebrity, making a good positive impression. Whereas the philosophers were more concerned with getting to the truth and uh, you know dealing with genuine honesty and wisdom. So philosophers tend to, to prefer plain speaking and simplicity and conciseness, and the sophists tend to prefer more elaborative, more emotional, more manipulative ways of communicating. And Marcus was kind of initially tempted by that, but gradually he, and it seems to have been a slow process, he was gradually won over to dedicate himself more fully to Stoicism, and he was persuaded to do that by Junius Rusticus, um, seemingly his mother's friend, who became his right-hand man at Rome. Junius Rusticus, when Marcus became emperor... Um, he was appointed uh, urban prefect, so he would have been in charge of the administration of the, uh, the city of Rome. And uh, my belief, incidentally, is that um, Marcus, after he left Rome to go and command the troops in, in Austria and uh, uh, in the Balkans, he, he probably continued to write letters to his Stoic teachers back home in Rome. And it's believed, we're not really sure about this, but it's believed, the best estimate is that Junius Rustic has died around 170 AD, which is round about the time we believe that Marcus started writing the Meditations. So a, a neat interpretation, although there's a bit of speculation involved here, would be that this guy had been studying philosophy and had these great philosopher mentors, suddenly had to leave home for the first time and go to this foreign land and uh, you know, live in a military camp. He probably carried on writing letters to his Stoic teachers and mentors. And then when his main mentor died, perhaps he carried on writing, but this time to himself, taking over the role of becoming his own therapist, his own mentor in the absence of Rusticus following the loss of his his most important teacher. And that's where the meditations comes from, perhaps. So... Yeah, the, the, I, I wanted to ask you about the writing style of the meditations. Um, yeah. Because typically when people journal, you know, journaling is, is a really great practice. I, I really find a lot of value in it. I kind of just like analyze certain events or maybe just give like like a, the skeleton of what's happened. But Marcus Aurelius' style of journaling is, is quite unusual in meditations. Uh, what do you think he was like thinking and what was his aims when he was writing? I think this is probably a fairly sort of established, you know, style of writing that he's engaged in. He's trying to be concise because that's very much the Stoic style, influenced by the the, the laconic style of speech of the Spartans. That's where this kind of original idea came from. And funnily enough, we know that I, the word laconic, which we use today to mean concise and pithy, comes from Laconia, the region in which Sparta was located. So that. That's a way of speaking that was associated with the Spartans. And throughout Greek history, 
Roman history. That, that's where this idea came from. And then it kind of became associated in a way with the Stoics. So Marcus was kind of trying to aim for this brevity in his own thinking and speech. And so we see in the meditations lots of these short aphorisms trying to capture key philosophical points, you know, in a couple of sentences. And by the way, in a couple of places, he tries to capture uh, philosophical maxims even in just a couple of words. Like he, he's condensing things down almost to a symbolic level, just into into a couple of words sometimes. At one point, for example, he says the cosmos change uh, life opinion, like, and he's actually alluding in that that sentence, that little saying to the philosophies of Epictetus and Heraclitus. He's doing it in a very kind of compressed manner. Uh, we know this, by the way, because Cicero, in a speech that survives called Pro Marino, is talking about the Stoic Cato the Younger, and he says, "Your lot imitate the way of speaking of the Spartans." So we have Cicero explicitly stating Stoics to him sound like Spartans. They speak laconically. And when Marcus was was writing, you say that he was trying to be his own therapist. Uh, and in the book, you you say that he might have been almost having imaginary conversations with his Sto- Stoicism teacher. Yeah. Um, I mean, I should say, by the way, sometimes people kind of balk at the idea of therapy, but usually that's if they, they haven't really got far into the 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 early um, Stoic literature because the Stoics actually call what they do therapy. Um, Chris Ipes wrote a book called On Therapeutics, and it, and in fact it was a very common um, idiom in ancient Greek to refer to philosophy as a medicine of the mind or a therapy of the mind or psyche. So they virtually call it psychotherapy. They use the medical metaphor. metaphor or medical model to describe philosophy. And actually, at the beginning of the meditations, Marcus straight up explicitly says that Junius Rusticus taught him that he required therapia, or therapy, for his character. So we know that Rusticus was doing a kind of stoic therapy with him because he actually straight up explicitly says that in the meditations. Um, and the, so the, 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 the process that that went through... Um, we don't have a clear description of it, but actually we have a book by Galen who wasn't a Stoic um, but had studied the Stoics called On the Diagnosis and Cure of the Soul's Passions. And in that book, Galen says he's drawing on Chrysippus and Zeno and he describes a kind of process of philosophical mentoring or therapy that sounds like it could be the, the type of relationship that, that Marcus had with Rusticus. You... You said in the book, which I found quite astounding, that roughly 1% or less than 1% of Stoicism writings have survived. Um, That's a very rough estimate, by the way. But we, right. funnily enough, it was John Sellers, who you might be familiar with. He's a, a, a professor of philosophy at um, King's College in London, and he's part of our modern Stoicism team. I remember I had a conversation with him once, and I said, John, like, how, how much of this literature, you know, if you had to put a figure on it, and off the top of his head, he said, I don't know, like, probably less than 1%. And I would say it's a very kind of rough approximation. That's like, that sounds about right to me. Do you think that, uh, like, because so much of it hasn't survived, that we are missing significant aspects of this philosophy? Or do you think that we've done a pretty good job of of mapping it together well? Well, you know, let me kind of give a sort of qualified response to that. Common sense. 
like tells me that if we're missing that much of it, there must be some pretty significant things that we, we just don't know about. You know, there's bound to be some stuff that would surprise us or that would be a revelation to us. And on the other hand, that we do have a reasonable, you know, body of literature that survives. We've got, and, and it's quite diverse as well. So we, we have these personal reflections of Marcus. We have transcriptions of uh, d- discussions with students from Epictetus. We have a summary of key points from Epictetus, written down by Ariane and edited by him in the Enchiridion. And then we have these letters uh, from Seneca addressed to, to Lucilius and various other people in a kind of mentoring sort of relationship, a consolation-type relationship in, in some cases. So we've got these sort of different perspectives on, on Stoicism, and they're pretty consistent. Like, you know, and the other fragments and bits and pieces and commentaries that we have are also fairly consistent as well. And there's some kind of replication and overlap between them. So that gives us a bit of reassurance that we're probably kind of privy to some of the main points in the in the philosophy. Like Seneca says a lot of things that confirm what you would take the key elements of Stoicism to be by reading Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius as well. They're clearly describing the same philosophy. So, you know, we we probably know most of the fundamentals of it. We can recognise Stoicism when we see it, that's for sure. Um, but there there must be other things that we're missing. And then the, actually the other thing that's quite strange about this is that because classical authors often don't they don't they don't use quotation marks right and they they don't normally have a, a formal means of citation um so in many cases they'll quote other authors and we can't tell that it's a quotation like they might say as heraclitus once said you know but usually they'll just kind of quote other authors and not even flag up that it's a quote at all and we, we can see marcus doing that sometimes quoting epictetus and you know there may be places where we think Marcus has written a passage. It may be a direct quote from Chrysippus or from some other unknown Stoic author, for all we know. For all we know, most of the meditations might be quotes from other authors. Um, you know, there's probably, I think it's a safe bet that more of that book is either consists of paraphrases or quotations from Epictetus than we currently realise. Because we only have half of Epictetus's discourses and Marcus quotes from him more than from any other author. And there are bits where he attributes sayings to Epictetus that are not in the surviving discourses. So it looks like Marcus had read all eight of the, the discourses, including the four lost ones. So there's probably other bits where Marcus is paraphrasing or quoting Epictetus that we don't even recognize. Wow, it's so it's so cool that there are like these missing books um do you think they're going to show up or do you think they're long gone i i mean you know every so often something turns up right and uh, you know there there may be there may be more discoveries but we've probably exhausted most of what we're we're going to find you know maybe maybe we'll be lucky and some other things will turn up in the future um like there are um badly damaged scrolls that are unreadable that contains some some Greek philosophical texts that maybe one day technology will will allow us to read, um, so that there's also that possibility. Oh, by the way, as an aside, I'll tell you, here's a little obscure bit of trivia for you. I think one of the most famous passages in the Meditations, 
and uh, let me know how you feel about this, but it seems to me perhaps the most famous passage in the Meditations is the first passage in Book 2, 2.1. And Marcus says every morning when you awaken, tell yourself that you'll meet uh, liars, uh, meddlesome people, treacherous people, and so on. And he's preparing himself in advance for, for meeting difficult people and people think of that as kind of reflecting his personality and so on it's easy when you're reading that to think this is something that marcus is coming up with and he's doing a lot of people don't realize there's a passage in seneca's on anger that's very similar and mm-hmm. uh and written earlier now marcus had read seneca um, there's not much indication that he'd really read his philosophical writings. He may have read political speeches by him. We don't know exactly what. But he never mentions Seneca anywhere in the meditations. And it's also possible that both Seneca and Marcus have read that in another earlier Stoic source. So maybe they're, they're both kind of paraphrasing another unnamed author. Um, so again, this, this is another oddity about reading the Stoics. You know, it may be sometimes one of them, like Marcus, is quoting Epictetus and we don't realise it, or it may be that they're drawing on some of the books that are just completely lost to us. Um, But they they often, that creates the illusion that they're being more original than they actually are. And, And so, for example, sometimes people will read the meditations and they'll say things like, you know, they think Marcus Aurelius was doing some sort of like psychedelic drugs or, you know, that he was an opium addict or something because it seems kind of spaced out. He's talking about the cosmos and all this. And, but if you're familiar with the Greek literature, you think, no, he's just reading Greek philosophy, right? He, this is the stuff that you'd expect a Stoic to be talking about. It's not, he's not pulling this out of thin air. It's not a vision that he had last night when he'd taken some mushrooms or something. You know, he, he, he maybe he did. But he, he, he certainly he took some opium. I, we don't know like, how much of a quantity he took. Um, but he, he, it seems to have been a, a very small quantity. But, he, you know, he's, he's talking about stuff that all Stoics would have talked about. And uh, sometimes people say that they think also from reading the meditations that he seems melancholy, he seems depressed. And again, I think that's completely false. Um, he talks about death a lot and the impermanence of things because that's what Stoics talk about. And Seneca and Epictetus talk about these things as well. That's what you would expect him to be writing about. And actually, the the lie is given to that by the fact that we also have other stuff that Marcus wrote. A lot of people don't realize this, but we actually have his private correspondence to Fronto. It was found in the 19th century. And uh, so we have a bunch of letters that he wrote early on in his reign, probably before, almost certainly before he wrote the Meditations. And... uh, and so we get a real, much more direct glimpse into Marcus's personality from those letters. And there, he comes across as a very easygoing, extremely affectionate, unusually affectionate, good-humoured, um, and also very talented man at, ma- at resolving arguments between people, at handling difficult people, as you might expect from someone whose entire life was dedicated to, to diplomacy. Um, we see in his letters with Fronto that his his character and skills as a diplomat are shining through, even in his personal relationships. But he's a, a happy, affectionate, kind of fr- very friendly man and doesn't come across as at all depressive. The, the, I think that's really good to keep in mind uh, about the paraphrasing and the quoting when you're reading the Stoics. Um, I'm definitely going to keep that in mind. I hadn't thought of it 
Um, and I'm, I'm really curious to read those letters from Marcus Aurelius and see other sides of his personality. I wanted to ask you how, like, cause Marcus Aurelius seems very skilled at dealing with difficult people and he, and he writes about this as well in meditations. Uh, what kind of tips could we use from Marcus Aurelius in dealing with difficult people in work or relationships? Well, you know, funnily enough, I, I'll, I'll, lay, I'll give you a little aside about that, actually, about his character. The, and we, you said right at the beginning, you know, that we were kind of humanizing Marcus a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that Marcus mentions in passing in the meditations is that he had difficulty controlling his temper. So although sometimes he seems like this kind of saint-like figure, he, he's often been described in that way, he says in the meditations that he was worried at times that he was going to lose his temper with people and he was frightened of the consequences of doing so because he was a very powerful man. And he'd seen people like Hadrian just order executions and stuff like that when he, when he lost it with people. Hadrian descended into paranoia. And so Marcus, I think, looked at that and thought, I don't want to be like that. And the person he says he lost his temper with the most is actually Junius Rusticus again, his Stoic mentor, who was maybe being a little bit tough on him when he was an adolescent um, and kind of challenging. So one of the major themes of the meditations, it covers many aspects of Stoicism. um, And there are several themes that are really quite explicit and and dominate throughout the book. Um, One of them is justice and the brotherhood of man, incidentally. But the other one is anger. It's the meditations to some extent is a book about anger. He he talks about sadness and loss. He talks about worry and anxiety. Um, but the emotion that he comes back to most frequently is anger. And partly that's a reflection of the times. The Stoics in general were more concerned with anger than with other emotions, which incidentally is, is different from modern society. Today, self-help literature and psychotherapy focus more on depression and anxiety and to a lesser extent on anger. But the Stoics thought anger was really the most toxic emotion, was really the main worry that they had in, in terms of unhealthy passions. And so, but man, for Ang- Marcus, it's partly a, a Stoic thing, but it's partly also a personal thing. This is something he struggled with himself. And in fact, the very first opening sentence of the meditations, he says that he learned from his adoptive grandfather, who we mentioned earlier, uh, who was also called Marcus Annius Verus, he, he learned nobility of character and freedom from anger. And that's the first thing he says in the very first sentence of the book. He comments wow. on how he learned about overcoming anger from his adoptive grandfather. And again, uh, this was a, a contemporary and a friend of Hadrian. Hadrian was notorious for being very, very volatile and having a very bad temper. Um, so I think Marcus would have seen the contrast there between these two men. And so uh, throughout the book, he has lots of tips about anger management and dealing with other people when they're provoking or upsetting us. And in one place, and I think this is incredible, if if I remember rightly, it's it's book 11, passage 18. Marcus lists 10 separate cognitive strategies for managing anger and, and dealing with difficult people. Now, I think that's particularly remarkable because it's not a kind of ad hoc thing. That list of 10 strategies, which he describes very carefully and concisely, he calls them 10 gifts from Apollo, the god of healing, incidentally, and also a patron of philosophy. But he returns to selections from that list 
repeatedly throughout the meditation. So usually he'll, there'll be passages where he returns to maybe three or four of those strategies and, and talks about them together, but he keeps coming back to selections from that list. It's clearly not a kind of one-off thing. These are clearly strategies that he's very familiar with, that he's he's learned very deeply through years of training and, and stoicism. This was drummed into him by his stoic teachers, presumably. And uh, I, the other thing I think is striking about that is if I've got a room full of cognitive therapists, mm-hmm. uh as an aside, you know, and I asked them, can you brainstorm a list of cognitive strategies for dissipating anger? I think they would struggle to come up with 10 off the top of their head that easily. You know, maybe as a group they might, but individually, I think maybe, you know, I'd expect an individual therapist to come up with five, six, seven, 10 would be pushing it. But Marcus can list 10 that he's very familiar with. And to me, I read into that, that this is a guy who has spent a lot of time thinking about these techniques and putting them into practice. He's not just theorizing. This sounds like a guy who really has assimilated this information. And so some of them are kind of simple strategies. It might seem obvious to us. And then some of those, some of them are a little bit more kind of arcane and might seem a little bit more peculiar to stoicism. And some of them are more specific to anger. Some are more generic. For example, he says that when someone upsets you, you should tell yourself um, it's not their behavior. It's not the things that they say and do that upsets me, but my opinions about it. Now, that's one of the most famous general psychological strategies from Epictetus. It's not things that upset us, but our judgments about them. And Marcus is saying he applies that specifically to anger. But he also says that when you're angry with someone, you should pause and ask yourself whether you are not guilty of doing similar things yourself, or whether under certain circumstances, you wouldn't become capable of doing things that are similar to the crimes that you're angry with the other person for committing. And so that's a little bit more specific to anger, perhaps. Um, and again, a kind of obvious strategy, but this is one of the things that he thinks it's very important to actually train himself to do systematically. And he also mentions his favorite strategy is a, will seem a little bit more obscure to many people. And this is the one he mentions most often, and it's the one he mentions first in this list. And he says it's to remind himself that humans are naturally social creatures and that we are designed by the gods, or we might say today evolved, to f- live in communities and families, and that we have natural pro-social skills and abilities, and that our survival depends on forming bonds and communities and cities and uh, supporting one another. Human beings left to their own to live like feral animals in the wild are very weak and vulnerable. And our strength comes from our ability to develop culture and language and build cities and form armies and bond together for our mutual welfare and defence. And there's a long, long philosophical tradition of emphasising this point. And Marcus frequently reminds himself of it. And because he's a Stoic and he believes we should live in accord with nature, part of that uh, is that believing that humans are inherently social creatures, he thinks we have an obligation to do that well to do it to the best of our ability, to excel in terms of our family and social relationships. And he thinks that we have inborn abilities that allow us to form friendships and communities 
and that we should learn to do that as effectively and as wisely as possibly as possible and therefore all the the, the social virtues of stoicism follow on from that I, I really want to review that list um, on the topic topic of anger there's something that I wanted to, to get your opinion on so I, I read Seneca's book on anger and I wrote an article of kind of my, my attempt to, to translate it for people um, and it seemed to me that the first stage of dealing with anger Seneca suggested was just to see how destructive it is you know just yeah. to, to see it for what it is and my friend told me that um, it might be unhelpful to see any emotion as good or bad um, and just to kind of be accepting of them all as natural emotions but oh interesting what do you think of that I dis- I dis- yeah, I disagree with your friend. The, so also I would say, that, or a half, I, I think what's missing from that is a distinction. So I would, I half disagree with your friend because I think there's a distinction between two different types of anger that are required to make sense of that. And the Stoics make that distinction. Seneca makes that distinction. I'll come back to that um, in a moment because I... What did I, I wanted to say something else there about on anger? It slipped my mind for the moment. Um, but this is a on anger is very interesting because obviously Seneca goes into this in a lot of detail, and the way he describes managing anger actually is consistent with what Marcus says. But Marcus kind of lists a whole bunch of other techniques. So that you'd think maybe Seneca had exhausted the whole subject of Stoic anger management because he writes a lot about it. But there's more in Marcus, and there's more also what seem like key points, interesting points. Um, this idea that we should see anger as destructive is definitely one of the main things that Seneca emphasizes. And actually Marcus emphasizes it, probably all Stoics emphasized it. And actually it fits into a kind of wider and more fundamental Stoic psychological doctrine or strategy. And that is to say, um, like, much like the Stoics say and remind themselves it's not things that upset us but our judgments about things they usually link that to another observation which is that our passions such as anger do us more harm than the things that we're upset about and this is a, so this is a very closely associated general principle that they employ so marcus would say one of his strategies is to remind himself that anger that our own anger does us more harm typically than the, the stuff that we're angry about. Because the stuff we're angry about might be insults or physical losses um, or injuries, you know, but those are all superficial things as far as Stoics are concerned, whereas anger hurts our very character. like, And so it gets us much deeper than anything else, anything external ever could, because anger penetrates to the very core of our being and damages our, our character itself. Um, so if we look at it that way, as Stoics, it's much more harmful than the things that we're actually angry about, ironically. And so that, that ties in with this idea of seeing anger not just as, as harmful, but also as, from the Stoics' point of view, very unnatural. You notice that Seneca talks a lot about how when people are angry, their faces are distorted and ugly. So it's important for the Stoics to say this because they think what is truly natural is beautiful and harmonious. And what's unnatural or against nature is kind of ugly and dissonant. And, you know, that we kind of sense at some level that there's something malfunctioning or, or wrong about it when someone flies into a rage. Now, to make sense out of that, you have to make a distinction, which Seneca actually makes. 
and which Epictetus also carefully makes. Marcus doesn't make it as clearly, but it's implied in some of his passages, and it seems to be, therefore, something that kind of runs through the whole of Stoicism. And that's the distinction between the propatheai and the the fully-blown passions. So the language of Stoicism tends to confuse people. When the Stoics talk about passions, they're mainly talking about unhealthy emotions and desires, but they're talking about desires that we're already kind of indulging in at a conscious level. Um, so they're not talking about the kind of anxiety that you would have if somebody walked up behind you and bust a balloon and gave you a shock. That's a, a that's a propathea, um, an involuntary emotional response. That's not the kind of passion that the Stoics are talking about. When the Stoics talk about passions, they're talking more about when you get depressed or you ruminate about something or you worry about something and it's kind of a conscious process that takes place over time and you're indulging in it, so there's a voluntary component to it, right? And this is actually a a distinction that's very important to me because it's fundamental also to modern cognitive theories of emotion. So when you have an emotion like anxiety, you can divide it into stages And the initial stage is what we often describe as automatic in modern psychology. It's reflex-like. So, you know, someone insults you and you kind of have uh, your heart rate goes up, maybe you feel your blood pressure rising, and there's maybe thoughts and images that just pop into your mind automatically, triggered by what they said. But then there's a stage of taking over voluntary involvement with what we call strategic thinking, deliberate thinking, where you start to chew over what they've said. And at that point, you can go in one of two directions. You can start to tell yourself, look, they don't really understand what they're talking about. You can say, who cares what they're saying anyway? They don't really understand me. Or, you know, you can cope with it. You can damp it down. You can reappraise it in ways that would reduce your anger or anxiety. Or you could make it worse. You could ramp it up. You could start dwelling on other things that they've said or that they might have said. You could say to yourself, I can't believe it. How dare they? How could they? I'm going to get them back. And you could visualize ways that you could respond aggressively to them. So now we're doing it voluntarily. What started off as an automatic reflex-like reaction has kind of been handed over to us. And we are given this raw material and we can kind of mold it in one direction or another. And if we're not careful, the Stoics believe that we'll, we'll carry on molding it in the negative direction. Our kind of inclination, if we're not careful, is just to keep magnifying it, dwelling on it, drawing it out and exaggerating it. Whereas with training, we can learn to do the opposite. And that's exactly how we think about cognitive therapy. There's this voluntary stage that occurs. And in cognitive ther- therapy, that's where we're intervening and saying, OK, let's just start responding differently to this initial flash of anger or anxiety. So what your friend said is that it might be unhealthy to view negative emotions as being good or bad. You know, maybe we should just view them with detached indifference. And I would say the Stoics want us to do that in response to propathei, to the involuntary initial flashes of emotion. Seneca talks about those uh, as first movements. And he says they're not even worthy of the name anger. So he makes a kind of terminological distinction. He's like, he says, I'm not even going to call this anger, but it's kind of the precursor of anger. Um, it, 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 this is a kind of emotional response that an animal might also have. But he says the type of anger I'm mainly concerned with is, is specific to human beings. And that happens next when we dwell on things and exaggerate them. Like it's under voluntary control. It involves conscious strategic thinking. So the initial flash of involuntary anger, if someone walks up to you in the street and spits in your face, you're probably going to feel angry. 
shocked, mm. maybe even anxious, right? But it wouldn't. It would be natural to feel a burst of anger and defensiveness in a situation that's confrontational like that. Um, you, you perceive a rule has been transgressed if they insult you out of the blue. You you know you're probably going to feel angry, same as if you strike an animal. You know it's either going to feel frightened or enraged. So we share this reflex-like response with animals, and we can modify it to some extent over time, but but largely it, it's an involuntary response. And so for the Stoics, it's an indifferent, and it would be of fundamental importance to their philosophy, therefore, not to view it as bad, to view it as neither good nor bad, because it's not up to us. It's something that happens to us rather than something that we are doing. It's an event rather than an activity we're engaged in. Therefore, it's an external and classed as an indifferent, neither good nor bad, neither helpful nor harmful. It's just like the weather. It's an event in our environment. It just happens to be inside our body, but it's being imposed on us. What happens next is how we respond to it. So if I then think, this guy's a effing idiot, how dare he? And I kind of start exaggerating things, drawing them out. I'm using rhetoric to describe it to myself. Now that's something that I could stop doing. I could do differently. And the Stoics would say, now this is a passion. Like, this is a vice. It's a voluntary response. And what I'm doing is foolish. Um, and it's reckless. Like, maybe cowardly in a sense. I'm being impatient. I'm being hostile. So I'm exhibiting certain vices. And that's bad. And I should stop doing it. And the Stoics don't have a problem judging that as a vice or as a bad thing because they think, uh, insofar as it's happening in the present moment, I could just stop doing it. Mm. And the alternative, which would be to exhibit kindness and empathy and patience, they don't have a problem viewing as good because that's something that we could potentially at least attempt to undertake. So they, they would say the involuntary part we view with detached indifference but the voluntary component, we distinguish between good and bad ways of responding. And I, I think that's not problematic. That's a healthy way, actually, of parsing things. And it's similar to the way that we, we might have clients thinking about it in, in modern cognitive behavioral therapy. I think that's a really important distinction. I hadn't thought of, thought of it like that before. But there is a component of anger that you almost create consciously after the initial like first oh. movements of it. Oh, yeah, people spend hours thinking about it, don't they? Ruminate. We call it rumination when people sit and chew over things and dwell on it, and that's voluntary. Um, you know, they could they could stop doing that. And actually, if you were sitting, thinking all afternoon about what a, 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 an asshole your boss was and how dare he and stuff, um, and I came along and said, hey, you know, like I, I've just won a ticket to go to free to this amazing concert. Do you want to come along with me? then, you know, you'd be capable of stopping thinking about what an asshole your boss is and, and going doing something else instead because it's under voluntary control. There might be aspects of it that pop into your mind, but you can choose to sit in an armchair and really absorb yourself in it, or you could choose to go and do something else instead and minimize the amount of attention that you're allocating to it, and you could stop the conversation that you're having with yourself about it. So we have to distinguish between the, the things that you're saying voluntarily and then these kind of automatic thoughts that just pop into your head. They're going to continue to some extent, but you don't have to continue with the conversation that you're having about them. Mm. In your book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, I... I've read a few books on Stoicism, but the, the introductory chapters where you kind of talk about the story of Stoicism and some of the, 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 the basic Stoic beliefs, 
I found those to be really informative and I actually recommend if, if anyone just wants to get like a really concise but detailed overview of, of the story of Stoicism and like the Stoic worldview to, to read that. Um, so I really like that and I, I feel like I learned a lot just from those first few chapters on Stoicism. I was wondering if you could explain to people how the Stoics saw the world in terms of good, bad and indifferent. Well, the Stoics, and I would say as an aside, increasingly as I've studied Stoicism over the years, I've come more and more around to the way of thinking that the Stoics really just saw themselves to a large extent as the successors of Socrates. So a lot of what they're saying um, is is heavily indebted to to Socrates, as he's described by Plato and Xenophon, but probably in other authors that are lost to us now. And so like the way that they saw the world is basically in part that they they think much human misery is caused, perhaps all real human misery or most human misery is caused by assigning too much value, good or bad, to things that are not under our direct control and that we are plagued for some reason by this tendency to get confused about the boundaries of our free will and action. And so we fail to distinguish between the actions that we undertake and the consequences or outcomes of those actions in many cases. So maybe that the actions that we take are voluntary. We can do them or not do them. But the consequences or outcomes of our actions might not be entirely under our control. We might be able to influence them or predict them fairly reliably. But in fact, they're never 100% under our control. Even if I choose to open and close my hand, it feels like I've got complete control over that. But if I have an accident or a disease or some kind of seizure, I might suddenly find that I'm paralyzed and I can't do it anymore. So the the Stoics think we need to learn to to make a clearer distinction between where we're actually exercising our leverage and then the things that are merely a consequence of that. Because if we try too hard to control things that aren't under our control, we'll end up inevitably becoming frustrated and confused in life. Whereas if we focus on taking greater responsibility for the things that are directly under our control, we'll become happier, more fulfilled, and more empowered in life. And so the irony is, and I think this, is, this isn't exactly how I think about uh, many problems in modern therapy, particularly anxiety disorders, that people try too hard to struggle with and control things that aren't really under their control. So they're banging their head against a wall often. And often they don't take enough responsibility for things that they actually could change. Um, and, you know, we were kind of alluding to this a, a moment ago when we talked about different types of anger. So people often, when they're anxious, they become really frustrated with the, the fact that their heart is racing and they might try really hard to relax and force themselves to calm down. And they just perhaps get more uptight and more frustrated because they can't get their heart rate to slow down or they can't get their hands to stop shaking because those are things that aren't entirely under their direct control. Whereas at the same time, they might be neglecting the fact that they are choosing to focus attention on their body rather than perhaps focusing their attention outwardly, which might be something that they have voluntary control over. So this is a slightly more technical thing that we would actually be doing often in therapy with clients, getting them to take greater responsibility for things that are under their control and learning to be more indifferent and more accepting 
to things that aren't under their direct control. And that's summed up by the serenity prayer that's used in Alcoholics Anonymous very neatly. Um, the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things that we can, and then crucially, the wisdom to know the difference between the two, the, the wisdom to draw a clear line, and that's lacking. The Stoics would say that distinction between the two gets blurred in most people's lives, and that's where a lot of our, our problems come from. So that's, the, I guess, the basis of the psychological teachings of, of Stoicism. Mm. In this modern society, you see a lot of uh, people, they, they kind of think of themselves as a victim of things. Um, this is kind of like the victim mentality, I think it's called. But when I read this, the Stoics, I, I feel like they just don't ever see themselves as victims of, of external events. And I read Seneca, and he I think he made the claim that like bad things can't happen to good people or people who have virtue. Um I was wondering if you could like explain if this is if this is the case. Do Stoics think that bad things can happen to them? This is what I would call I like to call the Stoic hard line, and and mm. that, it really does go back to Socrates as well. Um, so this I suppose this is the more challenging part of, of Stoicism. The Stoics, the, the most schools of ancient philosophy would say that the most important things in life come from within. So Aristotle, for example, and the followers of Plato. And in other schools of philosophy, we typically agree that virtue is the most important thing in life. Um, and that, you know, health is important, they might say. Wealth is important. Um, having friends is important. But these things are trivial compared to having moral or practical wisdom. If you're just a foolish, stupid, naive, angry person you'll ruin these advantages, you'll abuse them, you'll use them badly. Whereas if you're an enlightened individual, if you have self-discipline, if you have determination and insight into your own character, if you have moral and practical wisdom, then you'll potentially flourish even if you're faced with poverty and hardship and hostility from other people. So philosophers like Aristotle would say, well, look, virtue is the most important thing. But these other things are kind of important as well. The Stoics want to go further than that, though. They want to push it further than, than Aristotle and, and establish what I call the, the Stoic hardline. They want to say that virtue is not only the most important thing, and by virtue they mean a kind of moral or practical wisdom, strength of character that comes from a particular type of insight and wisdom. Um, they want to say it's the only genuinely important thing in life. And that Socrates kind of alludes to this idea as well, that things like health, wealth, and reputation, as they like to, to sum it up, what we call external goods, the Stoics want to say are, are really fundamentally neither good nor bad, but rather they're more like opportunities that we have. They're, they're at best kind of advantages or disadvantages. Um, but Socrates explains this more clearly when he says, look, you might think that wealth is a good thing, in the hands of a wise man, wealth might be advantageous. It might be an opportunity that allows him to exercise wisdom and do good things. But wealth in the hands of a fool might actually be a bad thing. It's an opportunity to squander his money on drugs and alcohol and get himself into all sorts of trouble, perhaps. So these externals are at best opportunities, which become good in the hands of a wise man 
are bad in the hands of a foolish man. They're just an opportunity for the foolish man to do more folly, like to exercise his foolish foolishness more more extensively. And so they're not really intrinsically good or bad at all. And that's the line that the Stoics take very definitively. So they want to say that Socrates' life wouldn't have been improved by giving him more money or giving him more friends or improving his reputation. But in fact, in a way, um, the hostility that he faced, the persecution that he faced, his poverty, um, his physical ugliness and other limitations, if anything, were opportunities for him to strengthen his character and become the hero that he became to to uh, the ancient Greeks that, that idolized him. Okay, um, so if if say that someone who's practicing Stoicism or like let's just take an ancient Stoic or take Socrates, if uh, let's just say like their house like was burnt down uh, one night, how do you think that they would process that the next day upon seeing it? Well, Chrysippus reputedly said um, that to the the wise man. Uh, Sickness is no more than if he stumbled, and losing his fortune is no more than losing a penny. So there, there are many examples in the classical literature of philosophers or, or heroes to the Stoics who went through similar kind of situations. And they see these setbacks really in a way as opportunities. And Marcus actually says that we should view adversity like a medical prescription. Uh, is is one of his favourite metaphors, this kind of medical model. He said it's like uh, Asclepius, the god of healing has sent us a prescription in the form of misfortune. And if we take this bitter medicine in the right way, it's an opportunity for us to get well by strengthening uh, strengthening our character, by exercising patience and wisdom and endurance uh, and becoming a stronger person. To put it very crudely, maybe glibly, it's kind of character building potentially in the eyes of the Stoics. Or to put it another way, if we didn't encounter adversity, then we'd just be weak. We would never have an opportunity to exercise strength of character. We have to have some pushback. We have to have some misfortune and adversity in life in order to grow as human beings. Epictetus puts this to his students by saying, imagine that Hercules had just stayed at home and, and laid in bed all day. You know, he wouldn't have been worthy of the name Hercules. You know, it would seem ridiculous to a Greek to think of Hercules as being the greatest hero that ever lived, uh, you know, if he just stayed at home and lived in luxury and never actually did anything. But he was persecuted throughout his life. He had to undertake the 12 labours and fight various monsters and so on. And he had a really tough life, you know, but that gave him an opportunity to become a hero. He would never have become a hero if he hadn't had to fight the Nemean lion and the Hydra and so on. And uh, the other metaphor that Marcus uses that the Stoics like in general is a sporting metaphor. So they say that misfortunes, like having your house burned down, would be like uh, having a, a sparring partner in the gymnasium. And so, so Marcus says, rather than kind of resenting it if you're thrown on the ground, you know, you just think about how best to respond and, and, and like, you know, how to get out of a hold and, uh, you know, and how to get control of the situation again. You know, you don't get bitter about it or complain about it unnecessarily. You know, you just view it as part of the game of life. Yeah, didn't he compare uh, the art of living to being like wrestling? Yeah, he says it's more like wrestling than dancing because you have to kind of brace yourself in advance to prepare for the things that life is going to throw at you. You know, you have to, you know, you kind of have to ready yourself for, for somebody hitting you. you, you know, fate, fate's going to punch you in the nose. 
And in this, what he means is you, Stoics need to prepare themselves in advance by doing things like the premeditation of adversity. In your book, you depicted a really interesting exercise where Marcus w- was looking into a mirror and imagining the emperors that came before him and reflecting on their mortality near, near the end of his life. Why, why would he do such an exercise and um, like what other exercises did they have to contemplate impermanence? Well, we can call this today, and using a, a term that we borrow from the, the Romans, we can call this memento mori. It's a way of reminding himself of his own mortality. So we might look at Vanitas paintings today, and they're kind of intended, you know, they might have a picture of a baby and a skull and a wilting flower, and it's intended to kind of remind us of human mortality. But for Marcus, in a way, it's more immediate, because if he looks at a statue of Hadrian, he used to be friends with him, you know, but maybe he's been dead for 20 or 30 years. And actually, Marcus might think, well, some of the younger officers under my command have only read about this guy in history books. And they've seen statues of him. I knew him when I was a kid. And so Marcus is surrounded by these reminders of his own mortality. His own predecessors are now just lifeless statues and abstract figures, ghosts that live only in history books. They've become legends rather than living flesh and blood human beings. And so it's easy, it's convenient for him in a way to look at these statues that he's surrounded by and think, one day, that's all that's going to be left of me. Pretty soon, I'm just going to be one of those statues over there. Right? And, and there'll be people that have never met me, and when they talk about Marcus Aurelius, they'll be talking about what pops into their mind. It'll be a block of stone, right? because that'll be their only acquaintance with me. So it's, it's kind of very tangible and immediate to him, but it happens to be part of a much wider Stoic exercise. And the rationale for doing that is that the Stoics, first of all, think that we're all in denial. You know, we're kidding ourselves and that we need to kind of knock ourselves out. We need to snap out of that and realize that, you know, we don't know when we're going to die. You know, kick out by a bus tomorrow. You know, we're, we're definitely going to die. Like, we see the, everyone else that's preceded us is dead. Like, you know, we, there's ample evidence, Seneca says. You know, there's more evidence for that than just about anything else in life. The one sure thing is you're going to die eventually. You know, everyone else that came before you is dead. And uh, Marcus stands in this line of, of emperors, all of whom, despite everything that they did and everything that they achieved, eventually, you know, are a pile of bones, um, you know, leveled by death. They're buried in the same ground as everyone else. And so he wants to humble himself. He wants to remind himself not to blow things out of proportion. He wants to remind himself to seize the day, to live in the here and now, and to focus on what's under his control from moment to moment and doing the best that he can, rather than living too much for the distant future or worrying about how people will remember him in the future. Um, he, he wants It's a trick or a strategy to encourage him to focus more in the present moment in doing the best with what's under his control. And also it's a, a, the Stoics view it as a trick for, uh, to, to encourage us to be more grateful for, the, for life uh, from moment to moment so that we don't lapse into taking life too much for granted. And did they, like, so other than the, the, the mirror exercise, was there any like, other main ways that they contemplated their impermanence? Yeah, I mean, they, they would remind themselves of it verbally. So you could say there's verbal techniques, there's imagery techniques. 
Seneca says that when he goes to bed each night, he says, um, I might not wake up uh, in the morning. You know, as I go to sleep, I should think of myself as grateful for the day that I've just lived. For all I know, it might might be the last day that I've lived. I I I might not wake up tomorrow morning. And each morning he wakes up, he says he tells himself, you know, this might be the the last morning that I wake up on earth. The day ahead of me might that I'm about to be, embark on might be the last opportunity that I have to spend a day on earth. For all I know, so these are little verbal kind of ritualistic strategies that some Stoics used, and then there are more visual strategies like the view from above. So Marcus would picture viewing his own uh, life and the uh, the whole world and uh, surrounding uh, as if seen from a uh, uh, you know, uh, high overhead from a helicopter or from atop a mountain, like the gods looking down from Mount Olympus. And he would encourage himself to think of the present moment as just one turn of a screw, as he puts it, one brief instant in the totality of his life. And his whole life is just one brief fleeting moment in the history of the human race. And so by thinking of the totality, we inevitably think of the brevity of our, our time on Earth. And it, it's just... It's like a, a single page in a vast encyclopedia or, or maybe even just a, a single word or letter on that page when we think about it in the context of the, the whole history of the human race or the whole history of the universe. So the Stoics like to encourage themselves to think about everything within the total context of time and space and that inevitably forces us to, to acknowledge our own mortality. And you have a guided meditation, uh, the view from above as well, which I'll... A link in the article. Yeah, I've got I've done a couple of audio recordings over the years of that actually. That was one of the things that, that as it happens kind of started um this whole thing actually, you know, not not just for me, but um the modern stoicism organization began in a way because I, I made that audio recording and some students at Exeter University listened to it and then they thought maybe we could do an experiment where we get people to listen to this recording and live like a stoic for a week. And that became what we call the Stoic Week which event, which is in its sixth or seventh year now, I think. And then that evolved into the organization, Modern Stoicism, which runs the, the Stoicon conference every year. And, you know, it's, it's become a, a much bigger thing. Now, 8,000 people did Stoic Week last year. Um, and it, it started off with just, you know, the idea of what would happen if we took that exercise and made it into a, a guided meditation recording and put it online. And it's grown and grown and grown each year since then. It's funny because like meditation apps are so popular, but there doesn't seem to be a dedicated stoicism meditation app. Yeah, I mean, people, I get contacted by app developers a lot. I think someone messaged me even just a few days ago um, doing something like that. But often the, the apps don't, don't seem to kind of take off or there's different versions in the, going around. But I mean, right. a stoicism app makes a lot of sense. Um, the mm-hmm. stoic exercises really lend themselves towards being put into a, a guided meditation format. Mm. Yeah, well, um, I I would love to use one myself. So, um, yeah, I'm going to keep thinking on like different ways that, that could be materialized. I want to go back for a minute just to Marcus's training. You say that he he first was introduced to philosophy when he was about 12, but then in his mid-20s, he started taking stoicism much more seriously and started you know doing daily exercises and, tr- and training. Mm-hmm. What would that have, have looked like that? that kind of training regime to becoming a stoic we don't know exactly i mean we i guess what what evidence we have we've got a lot of scattered evidence in the meditations and elsewhere 
Um, we can see it throughout the meditations, which is one of our best pieces of evidence. Marcus over and over again saying, every day tell yourself, or you know, frequently remind yourself. He uses these phrases a lot. So it seems clear that he's saying, on a regular basis, I literally imagine this thing, or on a daily basis, I say this thing to myself. And that's certainly how it comes across on a close reading of the meditations. And then from looking at Epictetus and other Stoic authors, it kind of looks like other Stoics would do that as well. So, for instance, Marcus says that when he wakes up in the morning, um, in order to, he does a couple of things in order to help himself get out of bed. He'll remind himself um, that nature intended him, he, but because part of his Stoic theory is that he nature intended him to be active um, and to exercise wisdom and justice. So he thinks of himself as having this kind of natural obligation to engage with life and to try and exercise uh, wisdom and, and he thinks of that as being the most important thing in life so he reminds himself of that in the morning to give himself a kind of motive to get up and get out of bed and start living life uh, you know it's the most important thing isn't just to be cozy or to have pleasure there's something much more fundamental and important than than being comfortable and that's to develop your character and strengthen your mind and uh, the other thing he'll say is every morning he imagines encountering obstacles and he prepares for them in advance by picturing setbacks and, and viewing them with indifference and responding to them calmly. So that's a form of what we call stoic premeditation of adversity. He seems to say that he does that each morning. And then on a regular basis, he imagines the totality of space and time and the smallness of his place within it. There's various other things that he, he talks about himself doing on a regular basis or in response to particular problems that he faces, such as if somebody potentially offends him, he uses some of those anger management strategies that we mentioned earlier. Um, so we, you know, we have that. And then we have things like in Galen and Seneca and Epictetus, um, they talk about the golden verses of Pythagoras, and there's an exercise in there, um, a Pythagorean exercise, but it sounds like it's one that the Stoics assimilated. Um, the Stoics were interested in the older Pythagorean philosophy right from the outset, by the way. We know that Zeno wrote a book on Pythagoreanism, which is completely lost to us, but the founder of Stoicism was interested in Pythagorean philosophy and wrote about it. And so the later Stoics, the Roman Stoics, we can see have assimilated Pythagorean ideas. You know, maybe that's throughout the whole history of Stoicism, these same ideas were, were drawn from Pythagoras and his followers. And one of them is this practice of each night before you close your eyes and go to sleep, reviewing the events of the day three times and asking yourself three questions uh, what did I do well that I could praise myself for and do more of in the future? Um, what did I do badly that I need to learn how to avoid doing in the future or to change? And and what did I omit or, or what could be done differently? What was absent or lacking that I could add tomorrow and, and, and begin doing? And so like, there's this kind of mental review that happens uh, at the end of each evening. Seneca talks about that in On Anger, but Epictetus also tells his students that they should be doing something similar. So th this is another kind of formulaic routine that the Stoics do. And the other one I should mention that they put a lot of emphasis on is role modelling um, people who like Socrates or Zeno that they think of as exhibiting virtue. And Epictetus talks about that a lot. And he, he actually says... 
to his students that in any given situation they should ask themselves what would Socrates do, what would Zeno do in this situation and refer to that as a, a template or a role model. Right, and you, you also say that the, the first stage of Stoic training would have been uh, the discipline of desire um, yeah. dealing with unhealthy passions, is that right? That's how Epictetus formulates Stoicism. There may have been actually, throughout the history of the subject, it may have been taught in different ways, but we can see how Epictetus is teaching it. And he says, look, the first thing is the discipline of desire and aversion, or the discipline of fear and desire, if you like. We could also call that the Stoic therapy of the passions, overcoming our emotions and mastering those, learning self-discipline. And just as an aside, that aspect of Stoicism is the bit that perhaps most closely resembles cynicism, the philosophical tradition that preceded the Stoics. So Zeno was a cynic philosopher before he became a Stoic. And uh, actually, Marcus sounds like he may have dabbled in cynic philosophy before he went on to embrace Stoicism. But as it happens, Epictetus talks about this kind of training and strength of character and self-discipline as being the initial stage of Stoicism. And then the later stages of Stoicism are more about learning to act in the service of justice, um, and become more engaged in the world and and learning to understand, uh, to become more mindful of our thoughts and to uh, become more skilled in logic uh, and more capable of questioning our assumptions, which is slightly more co cognitive, intellectual uh, component of Stoicism um, that's kind of perhaps lacking in, in cynicism and, and some other schools of philosophy. Mm. The, one of the kind of uh, main ways modern stoicism is, is marketed, I believe, is that uh, the kind of like psychological resilience um, and the kind of uh, it's marketed as like a, a set of techniques that can help you um, remain calm when, when stuff goes wrong. But w with Buddhism, there's a lot of focus on training in compassion. Um, there's various visualizations to help you become more compassionate. Are there also uh, exercises in Stoicism or any kind of focuses on, on becoming more compassionate? Yeah, I mean, the way that so many people would say that the way Stoicism is often presented as a form of self-help is not quite a caricature, but a kind of watered-down version of Stoicism. And it, it misses a couple of things out. It tends to emphasize self-discipline and to ignore um, the whole social dimension of Stoicism, like um, but funnily enough, that you know, people get that in Buddhist self-help, like, like you all say all the stuff about karuna, uh, compassion, uh, metabhavana meditations and stuff like that. And that's integral to Stoicism. If you read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, funnily enough, on virtually every page of the book, he's talking about justice, natural affection, cosmopolitanism, the brotherhood of man, and all of this cluster of Stoic concepts that have to do with our relationships with other people. And the Stoics think that we can't be fully developed human beings, we can't excel, we can't uh, flourish unless we live in harmony to the best of our ability with other individuals and with society as a whole. Like the One way of understanding Stoicism right all the way back to Zeno was that the goal was to live a smooth flowing life as Zeno puts it to live a kind of in a sense a kind of harmonious life where even if the universe is throwing insults and adversity at you even if you're persecuted and thrown in prison and your house is burned down that still somehow the wise man flows 
through this or past it like water. You know, it's kind of, you know, he doesn't get stuck with it. He doesn't struggle with it. He doesn't whinge about it or get bitter about it. He adapts to it like flowing water. And, uh, you know, the a big part of that is the way that we integrate with other people, even the, our enemies, even people that are ignorant or insulting. As Marcus says in that passage 2.1 at the beginning of the meditations, you're going to meet people that you don't like, that don't share your values. You're going to p- meet people that throw obstacles in your way. But the Stoic, rather than getting frustrated with them or hating them or feeling alienated from them, nevertheless views them as, as brothers and sisters. And he sees them as sparring partners in the in the game of life, and uh, you know he he feels a sense of oneness with them. The Stoics call it philostorgia or natural affection. You know this is the key thing is that the Stoic feels at one with the whole of nature and at one with the rest of mankind, and he doesn't feel alienated from or at odds with other people. And Marcus thinks that should be setting alarm bells ringing. If you feel alienated from other people, you feel at odds, like a stranger to them, then something's kind of gone wrong. Because even when he's surrounded by enemies, Marcus thinks the wise man nevertheless feels a sense of kinship or brotherhood with them. Mm. I, uh, following from this, uh, you introduced me to Jules Evans, who wrote his first book on philosophy, and he, he had a lot of stoic thoughts and ideas in there and he he said that after he wrote that first book he kind of found the limits of that way way of thinking and approaching life and then he wrote his second book on ecstatic experiences and i was wondering if there was anything in stoicism that that is mystical or um, maybe isn't like cold and rational um that maybe we don't know about there are definitely mystical aspects to Stoicism. And, I mean, it, you know, it depends how you define mysticism. But from a modern perspective, almost any ancient philosophy is going to seem kind of mystical in a sense because it's alien, it's strange. It's a foreign intellectual landscape to us. It's a different world that the, the Stoic sage inhabits in a sense. And particularly the metaphysical, pantheistic aspects of Stoicism are going to seem very mystical to us. The Stoics believe that the whole universe is a single living being, you know, for goodness sake. Like, that obviously seems like a kind of mis- mystical thing. And Marcus goes on and on about how, um, to paraphrase him slightly, he says that each human being is like a limb, uh, he like the, or like the upper and lower teeth, or like the left hand and the right hand of a larger organism. If he had this language, he would have said every human being is like a cell within the body of a larger organism. So that definitely sounds like a kind of mystical vision that he's describing. Many people have noted that. And this goes all the way back through the philosophical tradition, particularly to the Stoic uh, indebtedness to Heraclitus, the pre-Socratic philosopher that that, that influenced them and the, whose metaphysics they're, they're kind of famously drawing on. And one of the things I would say about the, the kind of ecstatic experiences, though, that this is what one of the things I, I think I've mentioned when I've been discussing this with Jules, it seems to me you can have as many mystical experiences as you like, whether it's through meditation or drugs or whatever. But then the question is, what do you do with those experiences and what happens next? You know, some people like Aldous Huxley or somebody like that, you know, might have a drug and just mystical experience and they're able to assimilate it perhaps and make it into great literature or build a philosophy of life around it. And other people maybe have a kind of mystical experience and it just fries their brain and they don't know how to process it. 
So I think that's where Stoicism and rational philosophy comes in, is that we may have these metaphysical, mind-expanding, eye-opening experiences, but then we've got to figure out how we're going to parse and interpret them and how we're going to assimilate them into our daily lives. And having a rational philosophy like Stoicism gives us a way of processing stuff like that. So that you see them as as, as kind of like a, a good complement to people who are more drawn to mystical experiences. Stoicism can be grounding and help them interpret. Things. I think you, I think I think so. Like I think if you don't have a rational, grounded philosophy of life, then you're potentially at risk from having you know mind bind. Everyone knows you can have good traps and bad traps. You can have mind expanding experiences that could be damaging to your psyche, and ones that can actually be empowering and liberating. And so then the question is, well, what's the difference? You know, and I, I think, you know, reason is the difference. If we can become grounded again and interpret things using practical moral wisdom in a down-to-earth way, like we can take these mind-blowing experiences and actually channel them in a positive direction. Or we can go crazy. Like, you know, but philosophy and stoicism in particular, I think, help us to remain grounded and to be able to kind of weather these kind of challenging mind expanding experiences without being blown away by them and uh, you know the people in the ancient world were certainly no strangers to mystical experiences you know they would sleep in temples and have weird visions they took drugs that would induce visions you know they believed in the supernatural in a way that we, we don't typically today um, so they lived in, in a, a very different psychological landscape from the one that we habit inhabit today that had different sorts of challenges from the ones that we face and they had to you know i it was a challenge for them to remain grounded uh, in light of some of the things that they saw happening around them they struggled to understand do you you, you mentioned earlier like that marcus aurelius took opium we don't know how, how much or how often uh do you do you think that uh any of the major ideas in stoicism or like uh, western philosophy was inspired by psychedelic experiences it's hard to say i mean in marcus's case i would say what no it wasn't i would say it wasn't directly inspired by it for the simple reason that these ideas already existed long before he came along so marcus is is assimilating ideas from an existing philosophical tradition so sometimes people have read the meditations and thought this comes from his opium use well, we know it doesn't because it already existed. He's just reading other books on Stoicism. It may be that he was particularly drawn to those ideas because they already existed and his opium use gave him experiences that complemented them. But that's not where the ideas originally came from. The ideas were already in circulation. Seneca and Epictetus are talking about the same ideas. We, Marcus, we're told, took a grain of um, like poppy juice um, that's what Galen says. It was part of a compound called theriac, um, which emperors typically took. But we don't know how much was in it. Mar Galen says that Marcus complained that it was making him too drowsy, and so they reduced the dose. And that's pretty much all that we know about it. So it kind of doesn't really sound like he was addicted to it. It sounds like you know he was taking a small amount of it, and then he actually asked for the dose to be reduced. But that, that's really all the information that we kind of have to go on. Now, were earlier philosophers inspired by mystical experiences? That's really a kind of unanswerable question as well. But what we can say is that there's certainly some kind of sympathetic relationship between the early Greek mystery religions, which, you know, used kind of sensory deprivation and kind of weird psychodrama and used fasting and drugs 
um, to induce altered states of consciousness. There's certainly a relationship between those and early Greek philosophy, um, like Orphism, particularly Pythagoreanism is very associated with the uh, Eleusinian and the Orphic mysteries. So, but, you know, the problem with the mystery religions is they were secret. So we only really know little fragments about them. And like, you know, it's something that's always frustrated classicists that it, it's kind of hard to say much about them definitively. So it was probably some sort of relationship, but we don't really know exactly what it was, unfortunately. We can only speculate. You, you meet, uh, I presume, a lot of people who are practicing Stoicism um, or you speak to them online. What would you say are the biggest misconceptions or mistakes at the, in, in the people who are trying to practice Stoicism that you see? Well, there's a bunch. Like the, the first one is that they confuse Stoicism with a capital S with Stoicism um, with a lowercase s. And those are actually two completely different things. So lowercase Stoicism is the modern concept of an unemotional coping style and it's loosely based on the idea of Stoic philosophy. So Stoicism with a capital S is an entire school of Greek and Roman philosophy. Like it's a big, complex, subtle, nuanced subject. It's a historical thing. It's a proper noun, basically. Whereas what people loosely mean by lowercase Stoicism is just having a stiff upper lip. And, you know, those are very tenuously related concepts. So as we've already mentioned, having a stiff upper lip may actually be in conflict with Stoic philosophy in some ways. So certainly Stoic philosophy means taking control of our emotions, developing self-discipline, so it could look like that. But if it means trying to conceal or suppress emotions that are automatic or involuntary, that's in direct conflict with what Stoicism actually teaches. Because the Stoics would view those emotions as being neutral, indifferent, and natural, and we should accept them, these automatic flashes of anger or anxiety. Whereas lowercase stoicism, having a stiff upper lip, sometimes might mean kind of trying to freeze them out or, or, or kind of go poker-faced or conceal them from other people, as if we're, as you your friend said, like viewing involuntary emotions as if they were bad things, as if they're harmful and kind of struggling with them. And we don't want people to think that because that's bad psychology. It's potentially harmful. And it's in direct conflict with a much more nuanced approach that the, the ancient uh, Greek and Roman philosophers had. And then the other thing is that we've already mentioned that people think of Stoicism as being about self-discipline. And in some ways, they, they confuse it with cynic philosophy, which was a more individualistic, um, self-discipline focused approach. Whereas Stoicism was a more cosmopolitan uh, more political, more more social philosophy. The Stoics believe that we're inherently social animals and we have an obligation to live in harmony with other people and strive towards a brotherhood of mankind. Um, and that is completely missing from a lot of the modern... So Stoicism was the precursor of early Christian ethics. So all the stuff in Christianity about loving your neighbour is inherited from Stoicism. You know, and it, it, to to thinkers in that period, they would have seen that as being particularly similar to, to what the Stoics were saying centuries earlier. Um, but now when people talk about Stoicism, this idea that it somehow might be related to Christian love of thy neighbour is just a completely alien concept because they've, they've removed that whole part and they're ignoring it. 
But like I said earlier, if you read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, it's hard to ignore that because it's on virtually every page of the book. I'm often, therefore, very surprised when people say that they don't think that's in Stoicism. I say, go and read the meditations again and just look more closely because it's, it's the main theme of the entire book that we should live in harmony with others, forgive our enemies, we should avoid being alienated from others, we should try and cultivate a sense of oneness, uh, both with individuals and, and collectively with mankind, um, viewing them as our brothers and our sisters and so on. Um, that's that's the, probably the main theme of the entire book, in fact. So that's a misconception that, that occurs. Um, and this idea, in general, that Stoics would be unemotional, or like cold, like robots, like uh, men of stone, like Mr. Spock out of Star Trek, and so on. And in actual fact, uh, the Stoics accept the full range of involuntary automatic emotions that we share with animals. And they also have a place for healthy emotions like love um, and joy. And even uh, the Stoics think there are healthy feelings of shame or aversion. Like the Stoics think a good man like Socrates would feel a sense of disgust or aversion towards lying or acting immorally. And so there, there are healthy negative emotions that the wise man would experience. So the, the, the Stoic sage has a, a, a range of emotions. It's just the pathological ones that he's eliminated uh, in, a, in an ideal world. So it's, he's certainly not, and the Stoics themselves say this repeatedly, our goal isn't to have hearts of stone or to become like, like uh, metal statues, uh, completely unemotional. So this is a, a prevalent misconception as well. And then I think the other misconception is that all that we know about Stoicism is in Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and Seneca. And that's not really true. Um, you know, particularly in Cicero, we have a lot of important literature, particularly, I think, in, in Cicero's book, De Finibus, we have our main systematic account of Stoic ethics. Uh, and also we know a lot about Stoicism by looking at the the arguments and the, the dialogues attributed to Socrates, in which many of the arguments are taken for granted. That the, uh, many, many of the arguments are, are explained, which the Stoics later take for granted and which support some of the conclusions. So if you want to understand the Stoics, I think you need to go back and look at Socrates and Plato and in the writings of Xenophon as well. I've noticed even with myself that I, I sometimes judge myself as someone who's, who wants to you know, improve myself or, or practice Stoicism well. If I'm not calm or if I'm feeling upset, I, I get this, this this thought that's like, oh, you're not doing it right or you're not doing it well. Um, but that but that's not the case, as you, as you were just saying. That's almost an opportunity to you know get clearer with how you think and and practice stoicism from that point. Yeah, and you know what, Mike? There's a couple of good passages that help to illustrate that. Um, one of them is in the meditations, and the other one is on anger, which, you, like you mentioned, you've been looking at recently. And in the passage on anger, when Seneca says he he uses the Pythagorean technique and reviews his day three times, <coughs> he says that he interrogates himself. It's this old metaphor that goes back to Socrates of the Alenchus, of cro like you're cross-examining a witness in a court of law. And Seneca says he cross-examines himself, he questions himself about his own character. So he does that quite forcefully, but he also says that he doesn't do it punitively. Like, he's forgiving towards himself and understanding and empathic, like, almost as if he's trying to help a friend. 
And, you know, one of the goals in, in classical philosophy generally, and including Stoicism, is to be able to develop genuine self-love and to be genuine friends to ourselves as well as to other people. You know, they might say, unless you can love yourself and be a friend to yourself, you're, you're not really in a position to show love or be a friend towards other people. And, and in a sense, you can understand the goal of Stoicism as being a sort of self-friendship or self-love. Um, you know, not just kind of like being in conflict with yourself or hating or punishing yourself, you know, but, but learning to do this fine balancing act of accepting yourself while at the same time trying to improve yourself, wanting more while at the same time, you know, accepting yourself for, for where you are and, and forgiving yourself for your flaws. And the, the Stoics conceptualize this. They want, they want to learn to kind of strike this balance in a, a nuanced way. And the, the other thing that helps us understand that is in, in the meditations where Marcus actually talks about how he would deal with a hostile person. So here he's talking about how he addresses another person. Um, and, and it's in that passage where he talks about the, the 10 anger management strategies towards the end of it. He says that he wouldn't speak to them um, as if he was trying to embarrass them in front of others or, or, or in a kind of lecturing way, like a strict schoolmaster. But he tries to be friendly and understanding and compassionate and explain to them like why he thinks it's against their own best interests to uh, engage in hostility. And that kind of compassionate attitude that he's exhibiting towards other people, I think, you know, it, it, it follows that that's the same kind of attitude that the Stoics want to exercise when they're critiquing their own character as well. Not in a kind of aggressive, critical sort of lecturing way, but in a, in a more gentle, nurturing kind of stance. I know uh, that the, the, the Stoics weren't like... Uh even though they practiced voluntary hardship um, and preparation for worst-case scenarios, they they weren't interested in self-punishment, and they did make a little room for you know moderate pleasure, um, like you know I think Seneca talks about drinking. So I'm just I'd curious to hear your thoughts on like in the modern world, you know, you have video games, pornography, social media, binge drinking. What would a like? A, how should a modern Stoic approach those kinds of temptations? Well, the Stoics, you know, again, it, we come back to the sort of like one of the basic principles of Stoicism, which is that the only true good is virtue, the only true evil is vice, and that everything else um, is neither intrinsically good nor bad. It's merely an opportunity. So that would include pornography, video games, everything. None of these things are evil. You could, if you want to emphasize that way, you know, to kind of redress the balance, if you like, the Stoics are categorically denying that any of these things are intrinsically bad. Pornography, mm. like, you know, you know, even certain forms of sex act and so on are not intrinsically evil. And in fact, the Stoics were criticized. They were ridiculed by the philosophers because they denied that incest was intrinsically evil. And they did that probably as part of their commentary on the play Oedipus Rex, where Oedipus accidentally sleeps with his own mother because he doesn't realise who she is. He was abandoned as an infant. And so without realising it, he sleeps with his own mother and then discovers he's done that and he goes crazy and, and blinds himself. And the Stoics' response to that is to say, well, this man is really just a cause of his own misery um, because there's nothing intrinsically evil about what he did. You know, it wasn't even intentional. Like, So, you know, if he was a Stoic, he wouldn't be angry with him, himself. He, he would just... You know, accept the fact that he he'd made a mistake, and um, 
you know, the, the act in itself is neither good nor bad, and it, it was unintentional anyway. So the, the, the Stoic stance would be, look, it's not that these things are entirely good or bad, but what matters is the use that you make of them. So it, it comes back to shifting our perspective. Like we focus too much on externals and not enough on the use that we're making of them. Um, you know, it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it, as it were. If you're using pornography in a way that's compulsive and addictive, then there's probably something wrong about the way that you're using it. But there's nothing intrinsically wrong about the thing itself. You know, there's probably a wise or sensible or moderate way of using it that, you know, that could be taken to show strength of character and moderation, arguably. Um, but the, the, real, the real concern would be if you look at yourself and think, I'm misusing this stuff, I, I'm using it excessively, or I'm using it in a, a compulsive or an unhealthy way. Um, you know, of course, there's a bit of a grey area as to how you would judge that. Um, you know, and, and to some extent, that's something that everyone would, would have to judge for themselves. Um, but it's the use that we make of these things rather than the things themselves that the Stoics think that we should be focusing on. Mm, that's an important distinction. Uh, just wanted to ask you one last question. Uh, when you were writing How to Think Like a Roman Emperor and researching it, what were the things that you were, or were you surprised by anything about Marcus Aurelius? Did anything come up for you that, that you found particularly notable that you could share with us? Let me think about that for a second. Anything that was... Gosh, you know, I've, I've been studying Marcus Aurelius um, and reading about him for such a long time, actually. It's kind of been a piecemeal thing, as it were. Little pieces have come together for me over the space of maybe 20 years or so. So it's kind of difficult to pinpoint a specific um, revelation, that I suppose, that, that changed the way that I, I thought about him. Um, let me think... I think that the more subtle thing that's changed for me over time is just a very drip, drip, gradual thing of in increasingly realizing how steeped he is in the preceding philosophical tradition. And I suppose that's inevitable. That's a slow-burning thing. That as I've studied the meditations more closely over time, I've gradually come to a greater and greater realization that he's referencing ideas and practices that he learned in school. Like that, that there's to view it as less and less, if you like, a, of an original work, and to see more and more the connections with things that that came before it. But that that's a slow piecemeal thing. Um, other things that um, I suppose one of the things that kind of struck me, although this was fairly early on, was that Marcus um, in the way that he conducted the... I think people underestimate the extent to which Marcus was attempting to implement Stoic philosophy in, in his conduct as, as emperor. So often people struggle to kind of see the connection. Um, we don't know that much uh, in some ways about his, his politics. Um, but the way that he conducted himself seems to have been, I think, more consistent with the political values and ethical values of Stoicism than many people tend to assume. 
Um, for one thing, he had a certain respect for other nations that perhaps wasn't shared by other emperors or, or other Romans in general. It, you'll notice that throughout the meditations when he talks about um, other people and uh, his sense of unity or oneness with humanity, he never says with other Roman citizens, which is kind of surprising in a way. Um, given his obligations, his position as emperor, he's thinking about humanity in its totality as a whole, not just the Roman citizens that um, he's governing. And I, I think politically, um, Marcus saw himself as, as being part of something bigger even than the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is, is, is being part of a larger world community. And and he you know he he had extended greater moral consideration to foreigners and so-called barbarians than, than other romans might have he tried to expand the empire and to assimilate uh, foreign tribes into the empire in a way that other emperors might not have and so that was something that i, I gradually began to realize about uh, marcus that his political vision i think is also a reflection of his stoic values mm. i I have to say that uh, reading How to Think Like a Roman Emperor uh, completely like unlocked meditations for me. So I, I, if anyone's read meditations and didn't get that much from it, I would really recommend reading How to Think Like a Roman Emperor and then going back and rereading meditations um, as, as I think your book kind of like, kind of like unlocks kind of hidden gems in that book. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for your time today. Um, where can people get access to your book, the audiobook, and learn more about you? And, and um, I know you have courses as well. You have a course, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, too. Yeah. Um, the course is actually starting today. Like pretty much straight after we're speaking today, I'm going to do the first webinar for that. So I'm quite excited about that. And if people want to learn more about the stuff that I do, my website is just my name. It's Donald Robertson, all one word, and it's .name rather than .com. And if you go there, you'll find my blog articles and links to my Facebook group, which has 52,000 people in it now. It's a pretty big group. It's pretty, very active. And uh, the courses that I run, um, which you can also get to by going to learn, learn.donaldrobertson.name. It's a subdomain on the main website. And there's loads of free courses and uh, downloads and stuff there that people might want to check out, um, email courses, e-learning courses, and then, you know, also the, the, like the big course on Marcus Aurelius and another big course on Socrates that I run too. And are these courses, like, you, you run them, like, uh, you have, like, intermittently, like, you every few months? Or how could someone join? Yeah, the they're kind of irregular. Like, they, they run maybe about every three months or so. Like, it varies, but I usually run either the Marcus one or the the Socrates one about roughly every three months or so, depending on, you know, how busy I am and stuff like that. Yeah. Wonderful. Great. Well, I'll put all the, of the links to that in the show notes this episode. That's great. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. Appreciate the conversation. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you once again. Thanks very much. I hope that you enjoyed that, took some value from it. A couple of quick things. If you can leave a rating for the podcast wherever you're listening to it, that really helps new people find it. And I also love reading reviews. So let me know what you think about it. And if you want to go further, and get access to all of my premium meditations and audio courses 
Ask Me Anythings, workshops, etc. Consider subscribing to Stoic Handbook Premium with a free trial, either directly within Apple Podcasts or over at stoichandbook.supercast.com. It's the same thing, just two different ways to access it. And I'll see you back here for the next episode of the Stoic Handbook Podcast.